Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. We're going to look at several passages of Scripture this morning, but if you'd like to open your copy of Scripture to Acts chapter 20 and also Hebrews chapter 13, there are a couple of verses we're going to reference from both of those sections. What do the following circumstances have in common? I'd like you to use your your brains for just a minute and think about something. Um, How about the abuse scandal in the Roman Catholic Church that's happened over the last decades? where there have been cover-ups of sexual abuse within the church? Or how about the podcast I've referenced on a number of occasions, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill Church, and the frustrations and difficulties that arose in that congregation? Or how about the current split and divide of the United Methodist Church, where you have one version of the church that's moving toward progressive Christianity and kind of not grounding themselves in the authority of Scripture, and you've got a break-off of that denomination that is working to say, hey, we do believe the Bible, and so there's a split in that denomination. Or consider all of the churches, Baptists, and other denominations across our Bible Belt that for reasons of stubbornness and not willing to adapt... Those churches are a shell of what they were decades ago. There's just a a handful of people worshiping there because they didn't have a leader or they weren't led or they weren't willing to follow the leadership that they had. Or consider uh, a story that I was told uh, privately from a friend of mine. He had a church in his community where the pastor had been there for upwards of 25 years, and somebody asked that pastor, what in the world's going to happen at your church? And this is a large Baptist church in a southern community, uh, had a pre-pandemic uh, up to 800 people worshiping there on a regular basis. Somebody asked that pastor, what's going to happen when you step away and retire? In his words, there's going to be a bloodbath because there's internal tension among the staff, and he knew that and didn't do anything to solve that. Sure enough, they called another pastor. He lasted about a year. They, he had to leave. Other staff members had to leave. And that church is in constant turmoil even today, years later, because of the difficulty that was present. What do all these circumstances have in common? Each of these instances reflect a failure of church leadership and a subsequent failure of the church or the church leadership structure to hold that leadership accountable. Really, it's a failure of polity. Uh, That word is an odd word. It's not used very often. It simply means structures or governing procedures for a a church in our case, but it could be uh, anything other than a church. What I'm going to preach to you today is a sermon entitled, Why Polity Matters. This is an aside sermon. We've been working through 1 Timothy. Pastor Tad did a great job last week opening up uh, the book of Revelation chapter 2 and looking at that church, that church at Ephesus that had left their first love. And in reality, we could put that church in that list of churches earlier. As Tad mentioned, there's not a viable evangelical body of believers there in that area of the world today. Uh, and so, what, what was the problem? I think there are a lot of problems that happen, but how do we address those? And this is why I think polity matters. So, what is polity? In short, polity is how a church frames itself, structures itself, 
so that we know who is making decisions and how those decisions are made, so that we know uh, how membership happens and people enter into the congregation, their responsibility in membership, the church structure and polity guides uh, the theological uh, soundness of a congregation. That's essentially what polity is. And there are all sorts of uh, types of church polity in the world around us. Uh, You could go to a hierarchical model of church leadership or government, such as Roman Catholicism, where you have a pope and then you have cardinals and then down underneath those. And essentially, Roman Catholics took that government structure from the disbanded Roman Empire. That's essentially where they picked up that model. So they took a secular model and kind of instilled it in the life of the church. And that's, I think, one reason why they've had so many troubles theologically, morally, and ethically over the years, uh, among other reasons. And we can get into some of those on our Wednesday night study. But that's a hierarchical model. Then you have uh, a model that, that functions kind of like a, an oligarchy, where you have a group of people that make decisions for everybody else. Uh, some Presbyterian churches operate in this type of fashion, where you have a group of leaders that's basically uh, the, the guiders of the church. In some ways, it becomes a dictator in the life of the church. You have other church polity where you have that same approach, but it's a pastor, I could tell you a church just down the street from ours, down the street in a different town, but in a different town where there was a pastor who, the the church was structured where the pastor made every decision, literally made every decision, signed every check, was the one who could do all of those things. In one instance, one of the pastors that came into that model of church leadership gave, gave himself a pay raise. Because he could give himself a pay raise. And then tremendously uh, brought destruction in the life of the church because he sold a Christian school out from under the church because he could. That's another type of church leadership structure. Then there's the congregational church. By the way, that's what we are. Books for a Baptist Church is congregational in government structure, meaning that the final say of the decisions of our church don't rest with me as a pastor or with our deacons. They rest with us as a congregation. Uh, by the way, I think that is biblical. Uh, I think if you look at the book of Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 15, what you'll discover is that the apostles led the church to make a decision about people who would serve the church in Acts 6. In Acts 15, the apostles led the church and they asked the church to intervene or to make some decisions about what it meant for Gentiles and Jews to get along. In other words, the final say of decision-making in a church, uh, that, that would be congregational form of church government. That's what we have, and you're not going to hear me say anything different than that in terms of what I'm going to say later in this sermon. Um, so, so let me get at the heart. What, what am I talking about? What am I trying to do? This is probably the most ambitious sermon I have preached in the entirety of my time at Wilkesboro Baptist Church. Oftentimes, I'll come to you with a text of Scripture and preach on it. And, and my desire is for you to respond to the gospel of Jesus or you to be encouraged or motivated to make disciples or worship or whatever that may be. And that sermon has a, has a biblical intent and it has an application in our lives. And I think that is tremendously important. What I'm going to try to do though in this sermon is make a case for why we should have some changes in our church polity why some things could be or should be done differently. And essentially what I'm talking about is as you read through the pages of the New Testament, 
What you're going to discover in the descriptive passages as well as prescriptive passages is that the Bible articulates a view of church government that I think it, it can be defined as a plurality of elders who lead the church. In other words, instead of there being a pastor and a church making the decisions, or instead of there being a pope, or instead of there being a group of leaders that tell everybody what to do, I think the biblical model that is prescribed throughout Scripture is the congregation that has a say with a plurality of pastors or elders that are leading the congregation to follow God's plan and purpose. And I'm going to make a case for that. Um, Let me give you three... Five reasons why I think we need to consider a change in the way we have structured ourselves as a church. The, the first reason is biblical warrant. Let me ask you to look at several passages of Scripture. I'll read a few. There's one in Acts chapter 20 I'll ask you to look at. Let me read several. In Acts chapter 11 verse 30... Uh, It says they did so, sending it to the elders. And I mentioned before that elders, pastors, overseers are interchangeable terms for the same office. That's what we talked about in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So if you're reading through the New Testament and you find the word overseer, just think pastor. If you find pastor, think elder. Or if you find elder, think pastor. That's what they mean. They're interchangeable terms in the life of the church. So there were elders in Acts 11.30. In Acts 14.23, when they had appointed elders, that's pastors, in every church, singular. And what's interesting, as you'll discover through the pages of the book of Acts in particular, you'll discover that when the church is used, it's used in the singular. So the church, whether it was the church in Jerusalem, church in Ephesus, the church in any of the other cities that Paul mentioned, when he references the church in that location, it's a singular form. But when the reference is to the leadership of the church in those locations, it's in the plural form. So elders in the church, and that is typical throughout the book of Acts. It's actually typical as you look forward in some other places in the New Testament as well. How about this in Acts chapter 15, verse, uh, verses 2 through 4. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. In verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church singular, and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Acts 20 verse 17, now from Miletus, Paul sent Ephesus and called the elders, plural, of the church, singular. Or Acts chapter 20 verse 28, which is the text we just read, and it reminds us that overseers and elders are used uh, interchangeably. Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock to which the Spirit of God has made you overseers, that's again in the plural, of the church of God, singular, which he obtained with his own blood. The picture in the New Testament is that a church should be a congregational church, I believe, with a plurality of elders or, or more than one pastor responsible for leading the church. I think that's a biblical testimony. Now, why don't all churches function that way? Uh, a couple reasons, because the passages of Scripture that deal with church government are in descriptive sections of the New Testament often, like the book of Acts, for example. Or when they're given in some form or fashion, like we're reading about in 1 Timothy, they're given 
given to deal with the character and the conduct of those leaders, but they don't necessarily, Paul didn't write a church government manual for us. He didn't give us a bylaws for every church. He didn't put that in the New Testament. God didn't give us that. So that's why we have a variety of church polities across the span of churches all over the world. But our task, if we're going to be Bible-believing and be as, as healthy and as clear as we can be biblically, our task should be, let's look at what the Bible suggests or what the Bible guides for us to do and try to be as close to that as possible. So let me share where this kind of came from in my own life and, and kind of make a case for this. The first reason I believe that we should approach a change like this is biblical warrant. I've thought this probably for about 15 or 16 years. I've done reading on it years past when we're thinking about the doctrine of ecclesiology. And so I've wrestled with this very issue. When I came here to be your pastor, I told you nearly seven years ago that I just wanted us to be biblical. I was going to preach to you from the Bible and we were going to try to do what the Bible said that we're going to do as a congregation. And over the past year and a half or two years, I've really wrestled with this because of all the challenges of how to lead a congregation in the midst of a pandemic. We had to make decisions that, you ne- I mean, I never thought I'd have to ever make a decision that affected the health of the people in my church. They don't teach you those things in seminary. They don't help you navigate. What do you do when you have the government telling you you can't meet? And then they say you may meet, but you probably shouldn't meet. They don't tell you what to do when people tell you it's not a good idea to sing in a congregational setting or in a choir setting. They don't tell you how to work through those things. And we've worked through them, maybe well in some ways, maybe not well in other ways, but we've worked through those things. And so over the course of the last two or three years, particularly the two years of the pandemic, I've really been wrestling with this. What in the world can we do to make Wilkesboro Baptist Church as healthy as it can be for a long time? I began praying on it. And by the way, some of you may be hearing this for the very first time, but this isn't new in the leadership life of our church. I've talked with several deacons about this for nearly a year. I've brought this before the deacons in recent deacons meetings. And I think it's safe to say I have the support of our deacons in considering a move like this. We had a very candid conversation about this in the deacons meeting in February and also a conversation in the month of March. So I preach this to you, maybe you hearing it for the first time, but not thinking about it in the life of our church for the first time and certainly not leadership hearing this for the very first time. So essentially what I'm proposing is that Wilkesboro Baptist Church rewrite our bylaws to indicate that we would be a church that is led by a plurality of pastors or elders, staff and lay elders. Uh, how, I don't know how many that'll be, four, six, seven, I don't know. Uh, you'd have to nominate those. They have to be approved by the congregation. But they would serve in the similar role that I would serve in. I mean, they're, they're a pastor. They're an elder. They're leading in the life of the church. And then the decisions that finally are made by the congregation are still made by the congregation. So if you're trying to figure out in your mind, well, what changes for us at the church, really what it means is there'd be more than one pastor who shared the weight and role of being the spiritual leader of the church. That's the biblical warrant. Let me share with you four other reasons why I think this is an important move in the life of our church. Reason number two is the history of Wilkesboro Baptist Church. 1880, Wilkesboro Baptist Church was begun, and this is in our history On the first Saturday, the 7th of August, 1880, a presbytery 
That is elders. That is a group of men who are leading the congregation consisting of elders, W.R. Gwaltney, John Adams, James Tinsley, and I.T. Prevett met in the courthouse of Wilkesboro, North Carolina for the purpose of organizing a missionary Baptist church. The missionary Baptist church would be Wilkesboro Baptist Church. Our church began with a plurality of elders. That was a pretty typical organizational structure for Baptist churches in the 1600s and 1700s as they existed in the United States. And it is the framing organizational structure for Wilkesboro Baptist Church. So why now do we have a pastor with deacons and, and not a plurality of elders? Simply because the typical response of pastors is to come to preach and, and then to move on to go to a different place at some point in their future. And who's left behind? Well, the, the leaders of the church that typically resided in the community were deacons. And so over the course of years, what took place is deacons stayed. And so when the pastor wasn't there, who led the church? Well, the deacons did. And, and in terms of godliness and in terms of wisdom and spiritual maturity, that's not a terrible thing. But in terms of biblical framework, that's not really the way the Bible articulates a church to be led. And so that's really why we have what we have. It's not a bad thing or a good thing. It's just that's the way it was shaped. But originally, our history had a plurality of elders. Let me give you a third reason. This is the reason for church health. So I've thought about this a lot over the last several years. What is it that makes a church healthy? How does a church remain healthy and stay healthy? And I think it comes down to two factors that, that sometimes we as a congregation can control. The first one is the godly character of those who are leading the church. That's a factor in church health. And the second one, it would be the biblical structures that the church adopts and puts in place to make sure that there are godly leaders leading the church. So, so here's what, what I would say to our church. Why have we had a chance to be healthy over these years, even if we're not operating in as much of a biblical structure as possible? I'd say this, at least from my experience, and I think this would be true for the years prior to us, the reason Wilkesboro Baptist Church has been healthy spiritually and a good congregation is because the leaders of the church have had a godly character. Whether that's a pastor, whether that's a staff member, whether that's Sunday school teachers, or whether that's deacons. And I'm sure we have our differences of opinion, and I know you could probably trace back some difficulties we've had in our past, and those things happen in every congregation. But by and large, the character of those who have been in leadership positions in Wilkesboro Baptist Church have been godly men and godly women if you look at it outside the offices of deacon and pastor. Why? And that's tremendously important because that helps us be healthy spiritually. It's also why... In some places where the structure is not at all biblical, you're thinking, I'm thinking of a Roman Catholic church or a Methodist church or other denominations where I think their, their polity is completely out of line with Scripture, why can there be sometimes good things that happen? Because you have a godly person in a role of leadership. And so there's a, there's a safeguard because there, or there is a godly person leading. But, but let's think about that biblical structure, for example. What happens if you don't have a biblical structure in the life of the church. Well, then there's a safeguard taken away to make sure that you have godly leaders leading the church, if that makes sense. A lot of those stories that I shared earlier, those starting point stories in this sermon, had people that were in positions of leadership who did not operate, live, act in a godly fashion. And in some cases, in many cases in that first list, 
illustration list I started with, there was not a biblical structure in place to hold those leaders accountable. So if you have godly leadership, we're okay. But what happens if we don't have godly leadership in the future? Well, and I think it's our obligation to be as biblical in our structure as we can. Why? So that we can protect the health of the church for as long as we can protect the health of the church. When a church lacks both godly leadership and a biblical structure, chaos ensues. I think that is the primary reason why you have the debacle that is in the Roman Catholic Church with sexual abuse scandals. I think that happens in Baptist churches, not necessarily uh, systemically because of our organizational structure, but I've watched it take place where you don't have a godly leader, you don't have a biblical structure to hold that leader accountable, and the church is in devastation and destruction. And what happens? The gospel is missed in a church that is not healthy because the church is just simply worrying about who's going to lead us and how are we going to recover from the scandal and how are we going to manage what's next. So I believe that for church health, we need to consider a change like this. Let me give you a fourth reason. The weight of elder responsibilities. This is one that I have owned and embraced as your pastor over these last years, and I'll continue to do so. Hebrews 13, 17 reads this. Obey your leaders and submit to them. That's the the part that every pastor likes. Because Paul's, or if you believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, Paul's writing, or if you don't believe Paul wrote it, and I'm not sure he did or didn't, wrote to the church and said, obey your leaders. And and essentially, in some denominations, you might hear that. That might be used as a means of spiritual abuse or control in the congregation. That's not what's going on in this text. Essentially, the writer is saying to the congregation, When your leaders tell you from the Bible, this is what we're supposed to do, then we need to follow that practice. It's a teaching responsibility, not like a dictating responsibility. All right? Are you with me there? So don't read that and hear, I'm trying to become a dictator because I'm not. I'm actually trying to give away authority and decision making and and leadership, not not control it. But here's the part that, that that has staggered me over the last couple of years. He begins with obey your leaders and submit to them. Get this. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let me illustrate it this way. Some preacher asked Charles Spurgeon years ago. Charles Spurgeon was pastor of the Metropolitan uh, Church there in London. Pastor of thousands. Preacher of the gospel to thousands. Some young preacher came up to him and and kind of complained a little bit to him and said, I, I, I can't imagine, or I, I, I'm, I'm disappointed that I'm only pastoring a church of a hundred, not thousands. Charles Spurgeon's response to him was something like this, and I won't get the quote exactly right, but it was something like this, a hundred will be sufficient for you to answer for on the day of judgment. So let me just bear with you a burden that I carry Uh, When I stand before Jesus one day, for my role and responsibility here as your pastor, I'll give an account for all of those that came under our watch here at the church. That means I'm going to give an account for your soul. If I haven't preached the gospel clearly and haven't invited you to know Jesus, and some of those in our gathered congregation of people don't make it into heaven because I wasn't clear enough about the gospel, I'll give an account for that. That's that's a burden and a weight that I take seriously. The reality is, and I'm just going to be honest with you, there are more things 
to do and more people to care for that I can care for in a way that is appropriate for you and appropriate for me and makes the church healthy. There is a weight to what I do, and I own it and embrace it, and I will forever own it and embrace it if the Lord lets me. I, I, I don't have any problem with it, but I need to share it with some other people. Because your souls, and not just those of you that are in the room, but the souls of all those on our membership roles, and the souls of all those who are extended outside the life of our church or connected to the life of our church are, more, are important enough for us to care for all of them in a healthy way. Uh, and I'm grateful for our staff. Some of you have commented to me over the years, I don't know how you do what you do. Well, I, we've got a great staff. Y'all, y'all, y'all have no idea all the things that our staff does behind the scenes that you'll never see. And that if I brought them in front of you and said, here's what this one does and this one does and this one does, they wouldn't like that because they don't do those things for you to, for you to see them and notice them. It, the only way I can do what I do is because of the staff that lets me do what I need to be doing. And the same thing would be true of our deacons, and the same thing would be true of our Sunday school leaders. Same thing would be true of those who, through the pandemic, helped us by ushering people into the congregation and seating them because we were trying to keep our congregation healthy. Listen, I don't do what I do alone, but there is a unique weight to what I am responsible for in, the, in, in thinking about your souls that nobody else really carries. Because I'm the called pastor of your church, of this church, the church that God bled and died for. And so part of the reason that I am casting a vision for us changing this particular issue of our bylaws is to spread out that weight and have others, lay leaders and staff leaders, share that burden of caring for the souls of our congregation. Let me give you a fifth reason that I hope really never comes into play in the life of our church, but it's significant. It's the reason of elder accountability or pastor accountability. I just want to be frank with you. Too many of the churches on that list early in that illustration that I shared and too many churches that I have had the privilege or whether you want to call it a privilege, that it may not be a privilege, the, 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 the opportunity to know what's going on in their lives. Too many of those churches have struggled because no one was holding the pastor accountable pastor went off reservation theologically sometimes and one of the things that's going on in first timothy paul is telling timothy pay attention to yourself and pay attention to your doctrine make sure you're right in the way you behave make sure you're right in what you believe make sure you teach right but make sure you live right and too many pastors and too many leaders in churches aren't do, aren't, aren't help, there's no accountability structure i've even wrestled with this here at our church in, in, in uh, conversations about uh, staff accountability and about performance evaluations, I've wrestled ever since I came here with who holds me accountable and how does that function. Uh, in, a, in a large sense, the congregation holds me accountable, which is true, but not in a direct, specific accountability sense. I can't, y'all don't come and ask me the hard questions. And I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm just saying that, that that's not the way that accountability structure is set up. And part of the reason for this is to have the shared weight of responsibility, but also the shared leadership of other elders who have the right to look at me and ask me what's going on in my spiritual life and what's going on in my leadership life and vice versa, where that accountability is mutual between me and them and them and me. And that accountability is healthy because, folks, if we mess up here, and I don't mean mess up by saying something out of line and making a mistake in our conversation. I mean, if we mess up morally, ethically, theologically, let me tell you who hurts the most, not the person who messed up. 
but the congregation that person is supposed to be leading. So elder accountability. Jonathan Lehman, who writes for Nine Marks, he put it this way, just as a kind of a, a way to set this in a framework for us. When an organization is growing and prosperous, nobody cares much about its governing structures or polity. If it isn't broke, why fix it? People only care when things fall apart, and then they clamor who has the power or discipline here, and who should be holding them whom accountable. Discipline and accountability are the first things people wonder about when leaders fail. Polity is not essential for salvation. Don't hear me say that. It's not. But it's essential for helping saved people walk lovingly and peaceably together. It's essential for passing the gospel to the next generation. It's essential for biblical obedience. Let me, let me share with you this kind of last reason for all this. It's not on your list. But God didn't send me here just to be here for a couple of years and walk off and leave. God sent me here to think about the church after I'm no longer here. Tom Rayner put it this way. He said, every pastor is an interim pastor. At Wilkesboro Baptist Church, uh, we have had a glorious history of long-tenured ministers and pastors. Al Andrews was here for 33 years. Byron Green was here for eight years. I'm going on my seventh year. That doesn't count the, the staff that have been here for a long time, which, by the way, blows the statistics out of the water. Tad's been here 14 years, and Danielle, eight, and Mike Norman was here 17 years. I mean, you just keep going down the line of the long-tenured staff members and pastors that Wilkesboro Baptist Church has. We think about not just today, but what's going to happen tomorrow and next month and next year and years from now. And part of the reason this has been weighing on my own heart in life is because I want Wilkesboro Baptist Church not just to be healthy while I'm here as much as I can help and, and bring that about, but I want it to be healthy decades after I'm gone. Uh, and, and think about it in these terms. As you look around the congregation, and you can do this in any of the congregations, in 10 years, our congregation will look differently. I mean, the reality is, in two years, our congregation has looked so different just because of the circumstances that have been forced upon us. In 10 years, it's going to look even more different. But what are we going to leave behind? Are we going to leave behind a structure and an organization that's, that's set up for health long term? That's what I want to see us do. So what does that mean for us? Let me give you two kind of very specific applications and then I'll close with an illustration. I believe we need to rewrite our constitution and bylaws, or bylaws rather, uh, to indicate uh, a plurality of elders in the life of the church. I think that's a rewrite that needs to happen. Like I mentioned before, I've already talked with the deacons about this process, and I'm preaching it to you as a congregation to let you know that's something I believe we need to do. And so I'm going to be attempting to lead us that direction in the coming weeks and months. What does that mean practically for you? I'm sure you have questions. I'm sure some of you have heard this for the very first time and you're trying to think, what in the world is the pastor trying to do? And I, I don't have enough time in one sermon to answer all of those questions. So here's what I want you to do. If you come out of this sermon with a question about what in the world does he mean and how does this affect this, I want you to write that question down. And you're welcome to come by and speak to me personally. I'll answer those questions personally. Or you can bring that question with you on Wednesday night. And since we're having church conference, it would be very appropriate for me to take some of that church conference time and that Bible study time and answer questions on this subject. 
So if you've heard this sermon, and you're like, oh, what in the world is going on? Write down your question. I'll be happy to answer it. I promise you, if you've got a question, I'm sure somebody else has the same question. And so don't be afraid to write it down and don't be afraid to ask it on Wednesday. That's the specific application for you. Now let me close with this illustration. I love Acts chapter 20, verse 28. That verse that we read earlier. Paul is speaking to the elders, the overseers, the pastors there at the church. And he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. We're sheep, folks. We're God's sheep. God bought us. I just read this morning in my devotions, John chapter 10, the passage that says, Jesus is the good shepherd. But I want you to catch this. I'm to pay attention to myself. Our leaders are to pay attention to ourselves because we're responsible. In a pastoral sense, I'm responsible to oversee the congregation in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. Folks, the reason I love y'all so much is because Jesus died for you. Jesus died for me. He died to make us a part of His family. He cares not only about what's going on in your individual lives spiritually, He cares about what's going on in our church, and He cares about how our church is going to remain healthy for five years to come or 40 years to come. He cares about those things because He died on the cross for those things. And you know what the Bible calls pastors? They call pastors under-shepherds. In other words, the model of pastoral leadership is to be like Jesus, someone who would lay down his life or lay down his leadership for the sake of the church. That's who we're supposed to be. If you want a picture of what that looks like in the future with elders in the life of our church, it looks like men who are trying to lead the church like Jesus, willing to give of themselves so that the body of Christ can grow as followers of Jesus. Uh, here's what you can do by way of invitation. You can pray for us. I didn't enter this sermon lightly. I didn't enter these conversations over the last year lightly. Would you pray for us? Uh, If you're confused or uncertain, that hasn't been my intention. I would be happy to try to help you clarify some things if I wasn't clear enough. Pray for us and, and help us discover how it is that we can be as healthy as we can be for as long as we can be. Because folks, we're God's flock. God sent His Son Jesus to give us a place and a people to belong to so that we can grow and be faithful for a long, long time. That matters for your children and grandchildren. It matters for my children and grandchildren. It matters for those that will grow up in the life of our church decades after we're gone. I'm going to ask you to stand with me if you will. Maybe you want to pray. Maybe you have something you'd like to do business with God about. I would invite you to come to the altar. If you don't know anything else to do, pray for me. Pray for your leadership, your church leaders. Pray for your deacons. Uh, Pray for us as we try to figure out what's next and how to do what's next in a healthy and godly way. Let's go to the Lord. Father, I want to thank you that you sent your son Jesus to be our Savior and our Redeemer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you love us enough to care about what's going on in our souls, what's going on in our lives. You care about us enough that you would send Jesus to be our Savior. I want to thank you, Lord, that you care about us enough that you even care about how we're structured and organized. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that we at Wilkesboro Baptist Church would be faithful to you in our leadership decisions, 
and the godliness and the way that we carry ourselves as pastors and deacons and Sunday school teachers and church leaders, pray also that we be as faithful to you as we can be in the structures we put in place. Lord, I thank you for this congregation. I thank you that over the years they have been so encouraging to me. And they've been so willing to follow uh, the leadership that you have uh, led, that, you, that you've guided us uh, uh, to put in place. Thank you for that. I pray, Heavenly Father, that this endeavor in front of us would be one that would glorify and honor you. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.